You're listening to Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth. This is the series where we look at how research is having an impact on our lives in real time and changing our world. In this episode, we'll learn how the sounds or vocalizations a group of animals makes can provide vital data in understanding and identifying different species. What's more, we'll hear how one researcher's 20-year-old Sony Walkman recordings helped in the identification of a whole new species of great ape. John Worsey interviewed Dr. Marina Davila-Ross. Have you ever heard of Pongo tapanuliensis? It's otherwise known as the tapanuli orangutan. It's the third of three species of orangutan, and there are only about 800 in the world. The Tapanuli orangutans live in Sumatra, and also in Sumatra, outside of that specific area, there are other orangutans, Sumatran orangutans, and then there are orangutans in Borneo. So just in these two islands, Sumatra and Borneo, orangutans exist. Until the study from 2017, there has been this general idea that there are only two orangutans existing in these two different islands, respectively. That absolute isolation that occurred through the volcanic eruption, but also earlier than that, about 3.5 million years ago, there was some separation from the Tapanuli and other orangutans in Sumatra. Marinas from the Department of Comparative and Evolutionary Psychology here at the University of Portsmouth and says the Tapanuli orangutan is critically endangered. But we nearly didn't know this at all. The study started actually 20 years ago when Eric Mayer from the Australian National University conducted a survey in South Tapanuli near Lake Toba in Sumatra and found that these orangutans living there are isolated apart from other orangutans in Sumatra, probably as a result of a volcanic eruption that happened about 75,000 years ago. And they also looked quite different. They had fuzzier hair and mustaches and and, and also the females are very beardy, more beardy than the females from the remaining Sumatra and Sumatran orangutans. So there then the idea came that perhaps these orangutans are differently enough so that they may be a different species. So that triggered then the idea to systematically compare Tapanuli orangutans or orangutans from that region, region of South Tapanuli with the other orangutans from Sumatra, and also Bornean orangutans. The Tapanuli orangutans live in Sumatra. So just in these two islands, Sumatra and Borneo, orangutans exist. So as a result of this study, the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, identified these Tapanuli orangutans as critically endangered, with only 800 individuals making up the population. So they are the most endangered great ape species. And that received a lot of media attention and also triggered a conservation plan. Also, there was a plan to build a hydroelectric power plant. And that is now being in discussion, is being re-evaluated due to a petition signed by over a million people. And that plan is now postponed for at least three years. And let's see what is going to happen. But 
we have to protect these orangutans at this stage without any protection. It has been calculated that within 75 years, there will be a decline of over 80%. So it's really important to observe the orangutans, monitor them on a daily basis to identify forest areas that are necessary to build forest corridors and to protect more the habitat also of these orangutans. The Tapanuli had also been identified in the 1930s, but forgotten by modern science. Without this latest piece of research identifying the uniqueness of the Tapanuli species, this small population might otherwise be faced with a hydroelectric power plant construction that compromised their home environment. Marina first got involved with the study through her interest in the vocalisations of orangutans. The Tapanulis don't exactly live in an easy-to-reach spot with a dense forest canopy in mountainous, rugged area unlike its swamp forest-dwelling relatives. 20 years ago, I conducted a study on orangutan long calls. Now, we were interested in long calls because they are vocalizations that are produced over long distances. So orangutans need to be able to identify their own species through these calls. They are used by males in order to keep other males away. So we predicted that these calls have a genetic basis, and I conducted such a study then as part of my master's project where I had recordings from eight different populations throughout Borneo and Sumatra, obtained from colleagues and also from sound libraries, but there were two populations where I didn't have data from. And so I conducted field trips in Sarawak and in Sabah, I had the chance to live for three months with the Ibans, which was very nice, and walk with them throughout the forest and camp in the rainforest and listen to the orangutan calls at night. We did not know at that time that the orangutans produce these long calls also at night. And then we walked in the morning to try to search for these orangutans and get good recordings. So that was a very exciting time for me. Then I was lucky enough to obtain a sufficient number of recordings from Sawak and Sabah and conducted an analysis based on these 10 orangutan populations. And the results showed then that these vocalizations are genetically grounded. The recordings were matching the populations, were grouped in accordance to the populations, and the populations also showed a pattern that matched what we knew about the paleomigration. That's how they realized they could use these long calls to identify different species of orangutan. Some of this data was really useful on the Tapanuli study, which led to the classification of the new species years later, in 2017. It was the long calls gathered from the Tapanuli population that was crucial in their behavioral analysis. The approach would be not just to look at genetics, of course, but but also to look at morphological features and acoustics and to examine the data across all of these levels and to see whether there were matches and whether there was a distinction between the Tapanuli orangutans and the Bornean and Sumatran orangutans. The acoustic part was where I contributed to, but this was a very large research team uh, led by Alexander Nature from the University of Zurich. 
and a huge research team of researchers from different disciplines and all joining forces together to conduct this study, which was really important because obviously we needed data from these three different groups of orangutans, but also across these three levels, genetics, acoustics, and also morphological data. These calls are quite difficult to produce. They they are very loud. They carry over a kilometer. They can be heard from such a long distance. And they are probably very difficult to produce. They are linked to the very huge orangutan males with, with these large cheek pads to keep distances from, from other males. The long call consists out of roars on weetus in the middle. I called them weetus. I didn't know how else to call them because they sound so unusual. They sound like a weetu. Then these bigger roars. They have also bubbling sounds at the beginning and the end of the call, and there are also some sighs. So that's the rough structure of them. But what we found was just two sounds produced at the same time. So one of them is most likely produced by the vocal folds in the larynx moving in a synchronized way. And perhaps there are some other folds in mouth cavities or so that that can be used. The orangutans have huge throat sacs, so perhaps something there can be used in order to produce sound waves. Marina explained how you go about analysing such sounds. The typical way would be to examine it by a sonogram. That's what I did most of the time for measuring these uh, orangutan long calls. And so the sonogram is a sound picture that shows the frequency on the y-axis and on the x-axis there's time. One can see if a sound is high-pitched, one can see if it's voiced uh, uh, or if it's more chaotic. One can see also certain shapes and one can identify different call types. Yes, so it's patterns that you're looking for really rather than, and you have to be able to distinguish the outliers from that and and see where the real recurring patterns are. Yeah, patterns in terms of finding commonalities, looking for commonalities and differences, and a good combination of both. The sounds were collected uh, 20 years ago, so it was more with analog recorders, a high-quality professional Sony Walkman and a one-directional microphone for very long-distance calls. But yeah, at that time, we tried not to use digital recordings because we knew that they would manipulate to some extent uh, the sounds, compress the sounds. Well, times may have changed with the technology available. But when it comes to gathering data in the field, Marina always has to be careful not to influence the situation with her own presence. It's always really exciting to record these vocalizations. It's just very nice experience and probably the specific call was that I got a little bit too close to that male and it's really difficult to find the right distance where you still keep a distance but get a good quality recording so remember that I noticed that I was a little bit too close to him I was about 50 meters or so away and he started to produce this call and um, I remember that I it was yeah, just very exciting to be there. And there were lots of mosquitoes biting me around that time. And I also hoped that the call would not be so long. <laughs> What's the danger of you being too close? Is it that they might actually become aggressive in, in protecting their territory? 
So these were orangutans that were not habituated to humans. So typically they would not attack humans. They would keep their distance. My method was to really just get slowly closer and closer and be able to get lots of recordings throughout the day and not to disturb the animals. And I also didn't want to instigate calls I didn't want to have an impact on the vocalizations because perhaps they would produce these vocalizations a little bit differently as a result of me being there in comparison to another orangutan being there. Marina explained how her general research interest led her to the Tapanuli study. She's looked at topics such as the evolution of laughter and infant communication. My main research focuses on communication of great apes. So I study chimpanzees and orangutans primarily, but also other great ape species. I choose these two because they are phylogenetically furthest away from humans and phylogenetically closest to humans. Gives a nice comparison. And I study chimpanzees in Zambia. The orangutans that I study live in a rehabilitation center in Sava Borneo. It's difficult to work with animals and just focus a topic on communication, like communication or emotions without seeing the situation. And we have the knowledge and how we can apply research in order to improve certain things in a rehabilitation center or in other places. And it just made sense. It's just often there is not a communication between wildlife authorities and researchers. We're developing a method that helps uh, these rehabilitation centers to more quickly identify strong candidates for releases. So when these rehabilitant animals are being released into the forest, they face a lot of challenges. Of course, a very different situation. So with this method, we can identify stronger candidates, but also identify skills that need to be improved. And when is the best time to release an individual? Marina now hopes much more can be understood by research into this precious Tapanuli population. That's too early to to say, but they're likely to be really interesting to study. So if there are genetically grounded uh, differences, uh, one wonders why this is the case. So if we look at the long calls, they produce particularly long duration. Why do they do that? And why are their pitches higher? Does it have something to do with the ecology? Does it have something to do with the interactions with other males? There's a lot of potential there in studying them just from a behavioral perspective. Next time on Life Solved, we'll be back to find out how our work is helping catch perpetrators and tackle wildlife crime in the field. When pangolins feel threatened, they'll curl up into a ball, so they are very easy to take from the wild. The scales ground down are used in traditional Chinese medicine, and their meat is also used. It's an awful, awful situation the pangolin finds itself in. You can find out more about the University of Portsmouth Wildlife Crime Module and more of our research at port.ac.uk forward slash research. You can follow this podcast on your favourite app and share it on social media using the hashtag LifeSolved.